In this lesson, we are going to look at terms in relation to the law of contract. Before we proceed, we need to understand why it's important for us to study this particular topic, as in study terms. On the one hand, terms refers to the list of obligations that each party undertakes to do in relation to a contract in a very simplistic manner. On the other hand, it's also a mechanism to provide redress or a remedy in case one or more parties breaches any term or any obligation that they have undertaken. Having said that, it's important to note that while not complicated, it might seem overwhelming at first once you consider the length and breadth of the requirements. The case law itself only suggests the scenarios or what exactly happened. But when we study or analyze the terms of contract, it might be difficult to determine based on maybe importance or whether it has been mentioned, what remedies are there, if at all they have been mentioned, so on and so forth. So we are going to look at this one step at a time and the spider graphs will assist you greatly in relation to this because you'll have a complete overview or a bird's eye picture of the topic itself and how it relates to the subject as a whole. Now, there are two main types of terms. You have the express terms and the implied terms. Express terms are terms which have been agreed upon by the parties themselves. They have stipulated it and perhaps even the remedies for it. Implied terms are ones that are imposed upon by law, either the common law or statute. These do not need to be officiously mentioned in the contract, but are implied by court. In essence, there are several different parts that a person can take if he purports that a breach has been committed by the other party. In relation to a breach that might have occurred uh, in relation to a term, the party who is seeking redress would be able to take one of three parts. Firstly, he might be able to request the party who has allegedly breached to fulfill the obligation that he has not. Secondly, he can request for damages for whatever loss that he himself has incurred, as in the claimant. And thirdly, he can ask to terminate the contract completely. Now, if we are to provide all three remedies for every single situation where a breach is alleged, it'll seem unfair on the party that has purportedly done the breach. What I mean by this is certain terms might be more important than others, and certain terms might hold more weight and cause more damages to be sustained by one or the other party. So, in line with this, we have to first determine the importance of certain express terms. There are three main types of express terms. You have warranties, you have conditions, and you have innominate terms. Warranties are the lesser category of the three, which means that where there has been a breach of a warranty, only damages can be upheld or only damages can be provided for the aggrieved party. Conditions are a step above warranty and where there is an alleged condition having been breached and the court upholds that, there can be damages as well as even termination of the contract itself if the claimant so wishes to. Finally, you have a very sublime type of express term which is the innominate term where it affords the same remedies as conditions themselves, which is either termination or damages. 
Now, for a clear example of what an innominate term is, have a look at Schuller and Wickman, as well as Lambard and Butterworth. Now, in relation to the former, court held that there is no innominate term, and the latter, as in Lambard, court held that there was one, as in there was an innominate term present. In the best case scenario, warranties and conditions are specifically mentioned within the contract itself and it's stipulated based on importance and the breach also in line is relatively mentioned. If it is not, then it is up to court to determine based on precedent whether the breached term is in fact a condition or a warranty. Now an innominate term has the same weight as a condition but may not be mentioned in the contract at all. It might depend on a case-by-case basis in relation to the importance of the breach itself. For instance, let's say a sale of goods contract in which a particular part is being manufactured in culmination or in association or relative to several other parts being shipped to a particular location. And let us assume that it is a sequential process. So parts A through E arrive, but F is delayed and G arrives afterwards. And this particular company is on a deadline. Now, this might not have been mentioned for some reason in the contract as a condition if there is late delivery of a particular part. So court might infer that based on the importance of the contractual agreement itself, based on the kind of work that has been committed, plus whatever losses that might accrue to this party due to the delay, that it is an innominate term. It goes to the very root of the contract. Have a look at Schuller that will explain a bit further on what it means to go to the root of the contract. Now, you might be wondering how exactly this importance is placed upon in relation to even innominate conditions or warranties. In essence, if you were to look at cases like Oscar Chess and Williams, as well as Halbert and Buckleton, both provide a clear explanation as to why certain conditions or warranties or innominate terms are considered as such. For instance, on the one hand, terms are made into conditions or warranties based on their importance, very simply. It is also considered based on whatever the party is relied upon, whether it might be the other party or in some cases a complete third party, as well as the relative knowledge of the parties themselves. A good example of this is Oscar Chess. In any event, the intention of the parties is what's critical, what's mostly important. And you'll note this throughout your course of study, as in in relation to the law of contract. Intention is what's most important to figure out whether, number one, it was a condition or a warranty, and two, whether in fact it has been breached and how important that breach was. You must understand that it is not mere words on the contractual document itself that is important, rather what was intended by the parties in entering into such a contract. So certain elements might not be strictly written, but intended upon. And this depends on a case-by-case basis, based on the contract, based on the parties, based on what was to be done, what losses may accrue, what benefits might accrue for that matter. Now that we've looked at express terms, ones which have been entered into or agreed upon by the parties themselves, we need to determine what implied terms can be imposed upon the parties contractually by law. On the one hand, you have the common law aspects of implied terms and then statutory authority. So we'll look at each in turn. By statute, one of the most pivotal legislative instruments is 
the Sale of Goods Act of 1979. Sections 13 through 16 outlines certain elements of a sale specifically in relation to a product that must be met in order for a contract to be complete. Now, we looked at this earlier in formative requirements, but very briefly, the statutory requirements in the Sale of Goods Acts provides a mechanism by which to protect a purchaser. For instance, elements such as satisfactory quality, which is not necessarily mentioned in a contract outright, specifically one in which the parties are lopsided, as in one having greater power than the other, the Sale of Goods Act provides a mechanism by which the court can infer such elements to be evident in the sale itself so as to protect a purchaser. This is an implied term and is given great weight as in satisfactory quality itself is a condition which is capable of terminating the contract if breached. On the other hand, you have common law safeguards or common law implied terms. You have trade usage as we looked at earlier in relation to certainty of terms. Malik and BCCI provides an interesting case in relation to the relationship of the parties themselves. Have a look at that in the case summaries. You'll understand why uh, implied terms in relation to common law has been decided on a case-by-case basis and how it applies to a contemporary context. Another quite interesting area is seen in the Moorcock, which is unexpressed intention of parties. Now, the Moorcock related to an intention of the parties which was not expressed either in writing or by verbal agreement, one in which was an absolute necessity in uh, the contract itself, but neither party really mentioned. So this is a good example for you to understand where court is willing to come in and impose an implied term and to protect a claimant who has been uh, aggrieved. So that was a brief outline of terms of a contract in relation to the law of contracts. We looked at how exactly the terms of a contract elucidates what obligations are imposed upon the parties themselves and what remedies are available for alleged breaches. Next, we will look at another important topic in the law of contracts, which is the regulation of terms itself, as in exclusion clauses, which are applicable, which are not and how we can go about determining it.